0: all of us deserve, but uh it's great. I'm uh, an alcoholic. I have no other issues. Um, if if that's a problem for you, um, I'm sure there are other meetings around you can go to, but I don't, if you're here for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it's going to be a long night for you. I, I have a <laughs> feeling, um, I uh, am, ba- you know, just, I don't know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at people who have been involved in my sobriety ever since I got ripe been sober since uh June the eleventh of nineteen eighty one and there are people in this front row who have been a part of my life who are here long before I got here and who have been here uh since I got sober who I respect and the speakers here today I know very well most of them and uh it's just great it's but it's intimidating as hell and um uh, and so inconvenient too and uh, i I've learned <laughs> if I've learned one thing about alcoholics anonymous it is it really is a pain in the ass but um it's it is. I mean, staying sober is damned inconvenient. It's uh, it's a lot is demanded of you. I thought if you just got sober, you'd get sober, and, and all of a sudden the sky would part and uh, things would get better. And boy, who was I fooling? I um, I got sober and things just started to get interesting. Um, I didn't actually get, I just stopped drinking uh, at that point. But I see people here and who've, who have had um, the most profound influence on my, on my life ever, of anyone. Because of their sobriety and because of the, uh, principles that they've been able to impart to me through their own actions and their own, uh, programs. And Alcoholics Anonymous is the vehicle for that. And Alcoholics Anonymous is what unites us all here. And Alcoholics Anonymous is what keeps me sober and nothing else. You know, there's nothing else in my life that does that. And I'm grateful for that. I, um am just a dork who drank too much. I don't know what else to tell you. I, uh, I wander during my talk. I, too, I don't know. I'm not good enough a writer to write it down and I, I've blown too many brain cells to have memorized it, so I just, uh, uh, wander around. But I have, I have, I grew up with good parents, um, who tried their hardest to cheat me out of a miserable childhood and I got around them and had one anyway. I, they, uh, <laughs> they were, um, fine people and, and, uh, tried to do everything for me and, and tried to, my mother had had, um, three pregnancies that full-term pregnancies and all the babies were born dead and so when I was born and I cleared my throat in that house things happened I was uh I was a celebrated case around there and my um parents were just uh so doting on me because I was alive that I was uh and my dad had been a um a marine corps drill instructor for eight years and uh I'm sure, I, as I grew older, I realized he must have been pretty disappointed in what the, you know, the issue of his loins when he took one look at me and realized that his only son's athletic skills pretty much ended with the use of eating utensils. You know, I, uh, by the time I mastered that, I just hung up my cleats. Uh, and my life, uh, I didn't, I truly was a self-possessed, self-controlled, self-willed, selfish, Uh, I was not interested in being around people. I was terrified of other people. I really didn't um, have a whole lot of experience with other people. I had a great, as I recall, a great underlying loathing for the human race that I couldn't quite express or tell. You can't, you can't say that when you're seven years old uh, to people, that that's how you feel about life. And my dad had 15 kids in his family, and we'd get together with the relatives, and everybody was hugging and kissing and that stuff, and it was just, it was awful. It was awful. I just couldn't wait to get out of there. I'd, I'd sit in the corner and just brood uh, during family reunions and Christmas and all that stuff because it never was quite what I thought it was supposed to be. I always had a conception of how I thought things were supposed to be and had great expectations about my life and uh the way things people the way people were supposed to react and uh, was always let down and and then I get angry and resentful toward them and never was conscious of it I was never cognizant of all this stuff but it was just happening and uh, I went through school with enormous amount of potential which I'm proud to say I still retain most of tonight um, I've just been I've been burdened with potential I've been um, heaped with potential that I choose not to use too quickly for fear of burning up if you know what I mean uh, I've had high school counselors and priests and teachers call my parents into the office and say, Charles has potential. We just don't know why he doesn't do anything with it. And my reaction to that was always the same. I think, uh, all right, so now you know I've got potential, and I've always known I've got potential, and now now my parents know I've got potential. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> why don't you just leave it alone? Um, I'll use it when I'm good and ready to use it, but I'm just not prepared to do it because you want me to. I'll do it soon enough. And when I do it, I suggest you put sunglasses on, because I'm going to blind your sorry butt when I use my potential. But till then, why don't you just go take your concern and go wipe it on somebody else, because I'm not your pet poodle and I'm not going through the hoop. And if you were such hot stuff anyway, you wouldn't be a high school counselor now, would you? Um, (laughs) That was always my reaction. I never came out in quite so many words. I think I said something like, "I'll try harder." uh, I felt, uh, I felt the same thing. You know, I just was. I don't suppose suppose there's anybody here who relates to that. I um, walked around my entire life with every every little human indignity that's heaped upon me because I was a weird kid, and I, I realized that there was a sense of identity and weirdness. And uh, I had a lot of weird beliefs about things and weird attitudes toward other people and, and different kinds of people. And I always walked around with that smug sense of, you know, all the time. I never did that to anybody because if you do this to people, they don't like you. And that's another one of those contradictions I had was that I totally loathed the human race, but I wanted it to like me. You know, and and approve of me, which creates a good deal of torque in your life, if you know what I mean. And uh, and so I walked around with that that metaphysical kind of one of these, but never doing it, but just thinking it, you know. And uh, and had that that arrogant kind of uh, uh, chip on my shoulder, sort of the, a rebel, but I wouldn't tell anybody, you know, which just kind of defeats the whole purpose of being a rebel, I guess. But uh, you know, um, some of you did that to people, and you know, you're the you're the ones who did time. I uh, I escaped unscathed by jail time but um i just i was just a mess I, I inside i was confused i was angry i was frustrated i was resentful i was always comparing the way i felt as, as clancy will talk about uh, the way i felt with the way other people seem to look and when he mentioned i heard him say that when i was newly sober i thought Fine, you know this is exactly my problem and it's probably the problem of 95 percent of the human race Except for one thing, and that is when I was eighteen years old, I went to a party and I had a can of malt liquor, and it made me different. you know it made me completely different from everybody else around me, and it made me completely different from most of the human race because alcohol really did something for me. it really lit hello i 'm always worried when my friends come in on a prop job i 'm glad to see them arrive um but it just it changed me. you know, I got to that party I, I was unusual circumstance because you know there were other people at the party, which was a real odd situation for me and um i had i'd gotten out of high school with no notoriety at all. I had um gone into the music industry as a, a clerk in a record store, and i was um when I was working there these um Guys who were sort of the low of my high school came in and, and offered. You know, they were hanging out there and they asked me if I wanted to come to a party. And I, I always had a begrudging admiration for for low lifes and thugs and troublemakers. I, I like I like that because it was honest. You know, I'm I'm one of those passive aggressive types who won't who will say I'll do it and then never do it. I say I agree with you, but then I do things that are diametrically opposite to what I'm telling you. But you can't yell at me because I said I'd do it. You know, and and um, so uh, I just. With, um, I went to this party, and everybody else was drinking. I did, I'll tell you something. I'm I'm 46 years old. I grew up in the 60s. That was my, my developmental period. And I never took a drug during the 60s. And I didn't even almost take a drink during the 60s. I got to about 1969 before I had a drink. And uh, I was 18, and I got a... I uh, can't, this can of malt liquor in me, and I just felt human for the very first time. I felt alive. I felt good. I felt, uh, more important than anything else. I felt completely connected to the people at the party. I didn't feel like I was an alien anymore. I felt like I was on even ground with them and happy. And I don't, I don't recall all this happening while it was happening to me. You know, it's been a period of 15 years and some odd months of of being an Alcoholics Anonymous and doing the steps and and listening to other alcoholic stories to realize what was going on. But I recognized that what was going on with me that day was I started to feel connected to people. And alcohol altered the way I felt about people around me. And it not only changed my attitude toward them and made me like them more, but it also made me feel hopeful that there was perhaps a chance for me to become something and become a part of them, even though I was just uh, six foot two and 127 pounds of percolating testosterone, basically. And uh, that's that's a story for another evening. But I um. <laughs> I'm always, Women and, and alcohol and fame were always my big uh, thing. I always thought if I could have those three at the same time, it would be fine. The only trouble is you have to get fame usually before you can get women. And then once you get alcohol in you, who needs a woman anyway? Basically, uh, uh, once I get drunk, I don't care anymore. I Whatever's going on in my head is infinitely better than what would ever happen with a woman. So... Um, uh, call me tomorrow when I need you. I am right at the moment. I'm kind of. I'm just on a roll, if you don't mind. And uh, I was just was. Um, I started drinking with these guys and and hung out with this group of hippies in Santa Ana, California, which was really not a hippie. They were sort of like hippie light, you know, in Orange County. Uh, Santa Ana, sort of this like Anaheim where I grew up, the city that can't be underestimated. And uh, I just drank with these guys. I go there on a Friday night. I was working in a motorcycle shop at the time. Say what you will, uh, that's where I worked and, uh, uh I, I went from the record industry into this motorcycle parts manufacturer and I was a shipping clerk there and I, wor- I drank with all these bikers and, and they, you laugh, but they protected me. They, um, I, I was sort of the, the, the dorky mascot and everybody was kind to me there and, and there was a guy who'd go around this uh, motorcycle shop with, he was one of the parts pullers and he'd have a shopping basket Full of ten high and, and kamchatka vodka and all this cheap booze and he'd pull up to everybody's station in the afternoon and everybody'd get a big pull off of a styrofoam cup or whatever they liked, you know, and I'd stand there and and start drinking at the shop and, and I, I got into being a receiving clerk then. I knew things were going to get better. I knew this was just, this was Chapter two of my life story, basically. Like, I always, no matter what I was doing, I always envisioned it in the larger perspective of my autobiography. You know, how people are going to say, you know, in 1970, Carney worked it as a motorcycle parts person, never aware of the destiny he was about to conquer. And uh, you know, I, I, that's how I thought of my whole life. You know, and then I'm drinking this booze and I'm thinking, yes, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. Not today, but it's going to happen. I smell it, you know. And then, um, um. I, I really have a dreary drunk I can't... I'll tell you one thing. My drinking um, did not change much from the first time I drank until the end, except I could fine-tune it a little more. Um, I am a blackout drinker. Not all the time, though. Usually it's... I didn't go into the blackouts at the times when I really wished I could have. Uh, I was usually around for the whole damn mess at that point uh, and trying to, you know, quickly get wherever everybody else was going in a blackout. But I blacked out for a long time and thought, boy, this is great. You know, I'd sheer travel time off like that. I'd be at a party in Long Beach with my keys in my hand and blink my eyes and I'm in my apartment in Santa Monica, you know, hold my keys thinking, damn, this is great. Uh, and then, uh, I thought that's the way it was supposed to be. I don't know why. I thought that getting in a car would automatically just kind of send me off into another place so I could just drive without any distractions. But, uh, then I started coming out of blackouts unable to predict where I was, where you, where you or just sort of arrive. And you're not quite sure who had been there right before you, but people seemed to be talking to that person and thinking it was you. And it was very confusing. And I, I drank like that. I'm not a, I never came out of a blackout, um, you know, with a hot tub full of hookers. Um, I heard a priest who said that one time, and again, my reaction was, wow, that's great, Father. Uh, I, I was imp- I was impressed, astonished. I heard a guy in my own group say he came out of a blackout coming back from the Bahamas with a pocket full of, of MasterCard receipts. And I thought, that's great, because I came out of blackouts at the dry cleaners um, <laughs> with this guy who was allegedly, from all accounts on the wall, he was the martinizing king, and he was leaning over the counter saying, boxed. Or hangers. With that, <laughs> with that tone of voice that tells you it's probably better that you not say, could you run that past me again? I just got here myself. Um, I don't know why he was getting so testy, you know, I, uh, I'm bringing in business, but he said that, and I'm like any alcoholic, you know, I come out of a blackout, uh, I don't come out, I don't know how, I, it's funny to think about it, how a non-alcoholic might come out of a blackout. I know my ex-wife, was not an alcoholic and uh, I couldn't imagine her coming out of a blackout except to see her waving her arms and screaming and calling 911 that something horrible had happened to her you know and non-alcoholics I don't think handle it as well as we do and we're the ones that are accused of not having any self-control uh, oh alcoholics, you alcoholics your problem is you just don't have any willpower I got willpower to burn you know uh, most alcoholics do we don't even come out of a blackout going oh, oh god what happened to me why am I here and who are you and where are my clothes not us um, I uh <laughs> I come out of a blackout, here's how I come out of a blackout, just like this. Cause I gotta read things, really. I gotta read them fast, I gotta read, uh, where am I? Who are you? Are you talking to me? If you're talking to me, what is your tone of voice? I have to quickly, surreptitiously swoop one hand down for a dry check. You know, because I have, on occasion, uh, been known to leave a a few drops of urine um, in public. Although, I mean, I came to AA, I heard people say, you know, I used to come in with sopping pants to AA meetings. I thought, God, that's disgusting. I just peed a little. um, It really is funny. It's so weird how we categorize, we lump ourselves around, around people who are exactly like we are, you know? It's like, it's like hearing black people talk about the shades of skin color and how well I'm not, I'm not that dark, you know? And alcoholics get in here and go, I never had sopping pants. I had, well, you know, maybe the size of a half dollar down there, but uh, and if you stop anybody who's not an alcoholic and say, how many, you know, how much urine is, what's the line between, between not wetting your pants and having wet your pants, I'm sure most people would say, "I guess about a half dollar size." Uh, I wouldn't want to go any further than that and say that I was still not wetting my pants, but I, I didn't know that. And uh, I don't know, my log is really tedious. I'm, I believe the fastest way to get down a flight of stairs is just relax. <laughs> I, uh, I like to sleep in parks. I like to uh, I like to dream. I like to sit alone. I like to pull the shades. I like to put on sad music, although it's not sad when I'm listening to it, uh, it's hopeful. It's, even though it's full of despair, there's beauty to the, to the despair for a guy like me. I, I, I celebrate people who commit suicide. And I don't mean that as a joke, I think there's something noble in the, cause I can't do it, and I'm, I'm a schmuck, you know? I can't even muster whatever it takes to kill myself. I'd probably wind up just hurting myself really badly, and I couldn't stand that. And uh, I just do that stuff, just sit around and drink and listen to things, and then go to work in the morning. By this time, I'd, I was trying to be a writer. I thought that maybe that would help me. Uh, I'd written a story about bears when I was in elementary school and my teacher said it was good. So I thought, that's the only thing I've ever been really stroked for. Nobody said, nobody ever said to me, good game. And uh, I, so I just decided I was going to be a writer because no one ever asked you to do that. If you say you're a musician, they might find a piano or something and say, well, could you play something for us? So I just said I'm a writer because nobody ever came up and said, oh, wow, would you write something?
1: And no one ever does that.
0: So I thought I was safe there and I, and I'm not so much a writer as someone who Wants you to think that I am. That's more important to me. And um, I was drinking at this place called the Humdinger, and I was the only writer there amidst a, a cornucopia of other celebrated uh, careers. And I was I drank at the Oar House in Santa Monica, which is again. Um, peanut shells on the floor, and, and big bouncers, angry bouncers, who were fine with me because I was a regular there, and they would just kindly send me home, and the police would follow me home. I lived right up the street, and I would, I would stagger home, and the cops would pull up in their cars and say, uh, where are you headed, pal? And I'd say, I'm going home. And, and they'd say, you mind if we follow you? thinking I was going to get in my car. I said, I don't care. I'd stagger up the street, and I'd get all the way up to my apartment, and I'd get the key in the door, and I'd look over, and the police would be at the curb, and I'd wave goodnight, and they'd wave goodnight, and I'd go in the house and pass out. And, you know, I can't imagine, I was lucky, because those cops were watching out for me. You know? And I don't believe God was, to tell you the truth. I don't believe that God was ever with me. and I, I almost killed somebody, but God was with me. I don't believe that. I just think God God's no dope. Uh, I, I was lucky, really i was lucky the i missed the bullets so many times that i can't even count them and yet i hear alcoholics and AA all the time come in here and talk about the horrors they went through the accidents they caused the people i have a friend in, in southern california who um you know on her last drunk she got drunk stole her father's car and crossed the center divider and killed a man and got sober in prison you know and um i don't think that i'm more blessed than she is i just lucky luckier than she was i didn't have to kill somebody but I was, I was leaking spirit. You know what I mean? I had, I had sprung a, a slow leak of my spirit that I could not stop at all. And I was not, I was not wicked or evil or I didn't have any, any kind of, uh, uh, profile that would make me uh, stand out amongst other people. You know, I never came out of a blackout yelling to somebody, cover me, I'm going in. Uh, never, ever had that happen. I just, uh, I was just pathetic, and I wanted—I wanted wanted to be alone. I relished sitting alone, and yet I always had a yearning to be amongst people, a yearning to be somebody with people, amongst people. I never could figure out what to do or how to do that. I always wanted to have a career, but I never could figure out what to do. And so I I was, uh, as I got into the publishing business, I was working as a a receiving clerk at a bookstore, and um, at Santa Monica College, I was unloading trucks every day, and I was—it was a. A little stepping stone job till I got my writing career going. I was there for 12 years. But I um I, I just wanted, I was ready to just die in the back room of that bookstore. Truly. I was getting physically ill. I was getting, I guess, mentally ill. I don't like to even over dramatize it because my life was not, compared to a lot of other people's suffering, I wouldn't cheapen their suffering by trying to make myself sound like, uh, like I had some grand, uh, Camille-like surrender at the end. Uh, I didn't. I was just, uh, woke up on the 11th of June of 1981 after my wife had filed for divorce. After five years of a, of a terrible marriage on my part toward her, I was cruel. I was angry. I was vicious. And I, would, and I found out there are a lot of ways to, to uh, injure a woman without ever laying a hand on her. And I did everything with her that way. And every time I did it, I felt guilty. I'd cut away my relationship with my mother. I'd never really developed a relationship with my dad before he died. And uh, he died while I was still drinking. And I I had just basically cut away all the people in my life and then got to feel like a victim because they weren't there. You know, we have an unusual way of of flip-flopping reality, at least I do, so that I can shove people out of my life and then resent them for leaving me. And I did that with my ex-wife, I did that with my mom, I did that with everybody. And my mother, God love her, she would give me money over and over and over again to bail me out of things, and I would take it and I just pocket it and then I would feel like she doesn't care about me. You know, she doesn't understand me either. Nobody understands me. I am—I'm far too complex for people to really understand. You know, and I go to—I went to therapy for two years at my wife's suggestion, and um, that worked up to a point. Up to a point where I was supposed to tell the truth, and uh, you can't tell the truth. I don't believe that a that a practicing alcoholic, and I don't believe many newcomers, sober alcoholics are capable of being just completely honest with someone. And I had this therapist who was. Absolutely, she had integrity, she was compassionate, she was professional. She had only my best interests at heart, and she did everything she could. And, and, she, and the thing that she kept saying to me was, you must tell the truth. And I would not cross the line to tell her that. I couldn't tell her, I didn't want her to not like me. That's a weird thing, but I just could not get her to not, I, I couldn't say something that might make her, have, change her judgment of me. You know, so I would not tell her the truth. I certainly wasn't, when I was married, telling my wife the truth. You can't do that if you're a practicing alcoholic. You can't, um, you know, go, go home and start drinking and sit there and have your wife come walking in the door at six o'clock when you've been there since four and have her say, Hey, how you doing, honey? How was your day? All oh, was great. The minute you left, I went down to Max Liquor Store, got a couple of bottles of, uh, cheap champagne because I understand David Niven drinks that. And, uh, I came home and had, had a couple of bottles of champagne. And then I went down to the, uh, Pussycat Theater to catch the noontime showing of Donkey Lunch. And then, um, I, after that was over, I did something really disgusting in the car on the way home. And I stopped at the liquor store and got a bottle of whiskey again. And I came back here and I, I felt so ashamed and so guilty and so lonely. I took a shower and, and tried to clean up and forget what had happened, what I was doing today. And I got drunk. And now you're home. How was your day?
1: You
0: know, you can't be honest with them. You can't be honest with your coworkers when they say, uh, "How was your weekend?" That just opens a whole Pandora's box. What do you say? Oh, it was great. Friday, I got off work, went home and drank a quart of gin. Boy, did I get sick, but it wasn't too much to keep me from going down to the ore house. But then they wouldn't let me in. They 86'd me, so I went back up to my apartment. I smoked a big thing of hashish with my neighbor. Started hallucinating like crazy. Uh, wound up, I don't know how, standing up on the roof of my building, yelling, Wiggle, at the cars down below. Um, with my friends trying to coax me down. The next day, I went down to the Humdinger down in Orange County. I was going to visit my mom, but I stopped at the Humdinger for two beers, two lousy beers. I didn't get out of there until three in the morning. Got her to my mom's house, and she'd gone out of town, so I broke into her house, woke up the next morning wearing one of her nightgowns, and um, <laughs> felt like I wanted to blow my brains out. I was so hungover, so then I, I got out of there, went I tried to clean up her apartment and get all the barf up from the cracks in the seat, and I uh, got, got out of there and went back home and started digging money out from between my seats at my car because it was getting to be dark, and... Uh, uh, I needed to get a bottle of port wine down at Max Liquor Store because uh, port has 19% of all the other fine vintages I was drinking were only 13% and um, I, I'd get the, ch- the change out and I'd go down and buy a bottle of port and I'd come home and I would sit in my apartment and I would sit and watch the sun go down and i feel like the loneliest human being on earth and wish I could die. Just wish I could die. How was your weekend? <laughs> you know, that's all. That's, that's one for human services. They'll take it right there. Uh, waiter, check. Um, so on the 11th of June of 1981, I was living in my mom's house because my wife and I had split up and she was living in the place where we were living. And um, I, I just had it, you know. I'd been on a meditation retreat. which is always uh, I was always trying to find some spiritual connection. I was seeking something, but I never wanted to join anything. Uh, I went to the Moonies. I went to, I had dinner with the Moonies, hoping that they might have something. They scared the crap out of me. Um, uh, They wanted commitment in a big way. Um, I went to um, the, I just went to a whole bunch of different things, just trying to find some identity and trying to be somebody and could not get any identity going at all. I couldn't figure out what the hell I was or what had happened to me. And I was 30 years old. I was um, sick. I was peeing blood. I was going to the hospital every so often to just get checked out. About 3 in the morning, in the emergency room, and have my friends, call my friends and have them take me there. And I didn't know what was going wrong with me. You know, I tried drugs to extend my, my uh, alcohol, the effects of alcohol and try to make it work a little differently. And drugs, uh, I had one, I only had one problem with drugs and that was they made me loaded. You know, and I don't want to be loaded. I want to be right there on the money. That's where alcohol put me right in the moment on the money and raring to go. I don't want to be sitting around smoking pot listening to some Miles Davis album for about six hours and then wind up in the kitchen eating mayonnaise at three in the morning. Uh, that's not my idea of a, of a big night. You know, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I tried PCP to be social. Uh, that was not my drug of choice, as people say. I didn't like hallucinating. Uh, I realized only in sobriety that, you know, alcoholics don't have to induce psychosis like other people do. Um, I took speed for a while to extend my drinking hours and realized that all it did was allow me the the, uh, the joy of my eyes trying to beat me into the next room. You know, i feeling. feel like, hurry, Charlie, let's go. And i am going and, and uh, somebody'd clear their throat and I'd leap for the chandelier at a certain point. Uh, I realized that wasn't working because I don't want, and I don't want to be mellow and I don't want to be cool. I don't want to take second all. And I don't want to sit around and nod. I don't want to do all that crap. I just want to be... I want to live you know what I mean I want to live I want to be alive I want to grab life I want to take the grapes of life and put them up against the roof of my mouth and crush them and suck the juice down I want to take life and and whip through it so fast that it just rip, burns the layers of skin off of me and leaves the raw nerve endings on the surface and I can just feel the pain and feel the burning and feel the sorrow and feel the experience and I can just sit down and write it all down for you and leave it behind as my gift I just want to take life and jump on it and screw it and eat it and climb on it and do everything with it and and rip through it to the point where, right at the peak of my powers, I go off like a meteor and just explode and shower the whole world in stars. You know? And, yeah. And I'm going to do that all tomorrow. And that's how I got to the 11th of June of 1981. Um, and I got brought to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting about four days later. I'd stopped drinking, I started becoming sober. Uh, physically sober, which was not a treat at the time it wasn't i wasn 't as dramatic as a lot of people who sort are of severe, but i 'll tell you i don 't want to do that again i don 't want to be quaking in my boots every second of the day, or then, when my boss sits me down and says, "We need to talk about your performance at work, I would just put my head down and fall sound asleep at my desk uh, in front of her. Uh, I would pull my car over on the way to work and weep because a seagull had flown by um, <laughs> Which is really, again, people, why are you late, Carney? Well, see seagull went by my car instead of pulling over. And It's not macho on the receiving dock. And um, your employees tend not to respect you at that point. And I just couldn't tell anybody what was happening to me. I couldn't tell anybody what was happening to me while I was drinking. And I couldn't tell them what was happening to me now that I was trying to not drink. And I just sat there and trembled for four days until something miraculous happened. And I can't tell you, I think my... Uh, it's it's amazing. I, I hate to call it a miracle. I just think that I was maybe surrendered enough to do something because it could have easily passed me by. But my sister-in-law got out of a detox, and my brother-in-law, who was my wife's brother, um, died of alcoholism at 25. And Bob and I drank together, and we had a good time together. And uh, after our last time sitting around drinking together, he went off and, and went swimming in a lake up in uh, near Santa Barbara and drowned at 25. And everyone was shocked and dismayed at what happened to him because he was so young and such a uh, he had a child and everything that could go that could go well for his life seemed to be in his hands and he just blew it off and he was in trouble all of his life and and he was a terrible alcoholic and um, so Bob's widow was also an alcoholic and she I helped I, I recommended they put her in a detox because I thought she really had a problem. This is while I'm, I'm standing there urinating blood in the morning uh, <laughs> saying, boy Debbie is really terrible. You know if you, if you can get her in a detox, please do. And they put her in a detox, and 22, 21 days later, she got out of there, and she 12-stepped me. And uh, I called her to see how she was doing, and she um, told me she was doing great, and that she had found something that had given her some hope while she was in the detox, and she didn't feel like she had to drink anymore, and that uh, it was a good, a good thing for her. And I asked her what was going on, and she said she was going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I had never been to an AA meeting. I never really thought twice about AA. I'd heard of it, but I'd never really been to a meeting, never been to a meeting, never thought I needed a meeting. I thought, I'm not an alcoholic. I just have some... I have spontaneous outbursts of enthusiasm followed by weeks of remorse, but I'm not an alcoholic. It only seems to happen when I drink, and and that seems to be every day, but that's not alcoholism because I don't drink in the morning, and I have a job, you know, and I don't... Alcoholics don't have jobs, and alcoholics drink all day long, and alcoholics are... are are really have really terrible tales of suffering and i don't have that i'm trying to just try to keep it together i've got about five thousand dollars worth of bad debt no more than that probably uh i'm i'm sick and i'm getting a divorce and i'm not that bad and um she said, well, why don't you, can you give me a ride to an AA meeting then? And she tricked me. And I wound up giving her a ride to an AA meeting. I was going to drop her off outside and let her go in. And she, um, she said, why don't you come in? You want to come in and meet some of my friends? And I thought, well, nothing can make me happier, uh, than to come in and meet your pathetic friends from the detox. Whoopee. Um so I went in with her and met her friends and, and I stood at that meeting and I was, I was still, I still had the, the, um, I don't know what you'd call it. It's not necessarily DTs, I guess, but it's those gnats that get in your peripheral vision that are sort of off to one side that kind of congregate there until you turn around and look at them and then they go away, you know. And then I'd try to talk to somebody and, and the gnats would come back, you know. And, and, and nobody else seems to see them or else they're just being really polite. And I would look and they'd be gone and I'd try to talk again. And, and, all I, and I went to this meeting that night and I was in my my writer's costume. I had a tweed jacket with a wool sweater vest on and the jacket was bulging from... I was much heavier than I am now. Hard to imagine today. And uh, I had a deerstalker hat and shoulder-length hair and a mustache and some sunglasses on and I was at that meeting standing in the back of the room going like this. And it was about... It was about 95 degrees on a June... It was a June heat wave in Southern California. I'm in the back of the room at this meeting going like this and people kept running up going, Are you new? And I was... You know, no I'm not new I'm not going to stay I'm not an alcoholic it's very nice what you're all doing for each other but I'm not going to stay I mean I quit drinking four days ago I'm not doing badly at all really I um, and I don't have a real drinking problem because I seem to have quit all right it's just this it's just the getting used to the bad habit that's probably getting me going and um but I'm not going to stay, and uh, I appreciate your help. But why don't you go wipe your insipid concern on somebody else? Because I'm not buying. Thanks. And uh, it didn't quite come out that way. I think I said something like, "I'm with Debbie." But um, <laughs> that's. I, I went with. I hung out with her. We went out for coffee after the meeting, which became uh, something of a tradition for me. My first five years of, of sobriety was I wound up first I wound up being dragged to coffee, then I wound up dragging people to coffee. Uh, Debbie got drunk at 32 days took her eight and a half years to get back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I felt dumped, you know. I mean, a- now, she brings me to AA, she leaves me off there, then she goes out and drinks. After a hospital program. She was cured, and she went out and drank again. That's what my head told me. And then she dumps me in AA, and I don't even have the benefit of a hospital program. All I've got is gnats and And people... Coming up and giving me phone numbers and, and being kind. And I hated it. And then somebody suggested I go to the Pacific group because I didn't seem to be getting any better where I was. I was there for thirty days and I didn't want to do anything. I was going to one meeting a week and, and just hanging out. So they sent me to the Pacific group and gave me the address. I heard a fellow named Keith C speak at, at that meeting that I was going to. And Keith said, You gotta get to more meetings. Here here's where the meeting is next Wednesday night, I'll look for you there. And I thought, Oh great you know so I was working in Santa Monica and, and uh living in Orange County, and it was a 45-mile drive, a 40-mile drive each direction. And so I would, I didn't want to get caught in traffic, and I'd go to the bars after I got off work and sit there and drink 7-Up until uh, the meeting would start, you know. And then I went to the Pacific Group meeting that first night, and I sat there, and I just, just felt so... I didn't know what the heck to do. I was completely beside myself with confusion and, and felt so alien from everybody. And people were kind to me there, and they gave me phone numbers and told me to call. And one guy in particular... Richard B. His name is Richard Barton, and Richard's no longer Richard's dead now, and um, he's no longer with us. As people would say, he died. And um, he Richard gave me his number and said, "Call me tomorrow. I'll wait for you to call me. Uh, call me at one o'clock." So I sat by the telephone till one o'clock, you know. And at one, when it went to one o'clock, I called Richard, and he forgot who I was. <laughs> who are you again? I said, "The guy you gave me your card. You gave me your card last night." He said, "I gave my card to a lot of people. Um, I tell you to call me." And I said, "Yeah." He said, call you at one o'clock. Oh, yeah. Hi, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm calling you at one o'clock. I don't know what, what's the word? I thought he was going to give me the secret word. Uh, <laughs> yeah? He said, yeah. Are you going to be at the meeting tonight? And I said, well, I hadn't really planned on it. He said, well, I'll see you there. And he hung up. So then I couldn't get it, I couldn't call him back, so I just went to the meeting to tell him that next time I probably wouldn't be there. And, uh, I went back to, I went to the meeting that night and there were people there again who were kind to me and and one guy dragged me to one of the Pacific group uh, traditions called a watch where we all, about 150 of us sit around and wait till 10 minutes to 12 or 10 seconds to 12 and then count down a person who's turning a year sober, their last uh night before their first birthday, we count it down and then sing happy birthday to them and shake their hands and shake their sponsor's hand and leave. It's a tradition in our group. And everybody, they dragged me to this watch, and I was amazed at what people were doing. And then they said, well, we'll see you tomorrow. And I thought, well, I couldn't tell them. Well, no, you won't, because they'd been so nice, and I thought they'd throw me out if I didn't come back. So the next night, I went to the men's stag meeting, and, and everybody was happy there. And, they, you know, all the men, with men, you know, men. And I, I, was imbe- I couldn't be around guys. I just felt intimidated by them, and they were all, again, very nice, and I got a commitment there, and they kept bugging me to get a sponsor, and so I got a sponsor, just to shut them up. That's the only reason I got a sponsor. You don't have Sincerity is not a prerequisite for staying sober. I got news for you. Um, you just have to take the action. There's no sincerity attached to it, and we almost insist you be insincere because you're more fun to watch anyway. But, um, I got a sponsor. His name is Bill McD, and he's about six foot six and testy. A lot of the time. And, and he, he was nice to me for a while, but I asked him to be my sponsor, and he just turned. Ah, <laughs> miserable. And he sat me down at this, uh, at this coffee shop, and he said, um, are you willing to do anything to stay sober? And I said, yeah. And I, I meant it. And I was. You know, I had fought drinking with everything I had for about 30 days, 40 days, 50 days. And I was actually day-to-day, I'd heard one day at a time, but I was fighting the notion of taking a drink each day because I kept going to bars after the meetings and sitting there and fighting drinking and drinking 7-Up while I'm watching everybody else get downtown. You know, the conversation gets a little oily and people start pairing off. And I'm sitting there drinking 7-Up as fast as I can and wondering why I'm about to leap out of my skin. And Bill said, "Um, so you're willing to do anything to stay sober? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, okay. I want you to shave that silly mustache off and get a haircut, and I'll see you Friday, at, uh, next Friday at the stag. And I thought, time out. Where does it say in Alcoholics Anonymous that you... And he says, it's not in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well, where is it in the big book? And, and I was bluffing, because I hadn't read the big book. I, but I, uh, <laughs> I had perused the table of contents and knew that there was no chapter to the, the barber. So uh, I said, where... Um, where is it in the big book that says that I should shave, should shave? And he said, it's not in the big book. It's not in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not anywhere in the program. He said, I said, well, why do I? And he said, listen, I want to tell you something. I don't normally explain directions that I give. But tonight, I'm going to give you a freebie, sport. You just said 30 seconds ago that you were willing to do anything to stay sober, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, I just asked you to shave your mustache off. If you're not willing to shave your mustache off something that simple, just because I asked you to do it, what makes you think you're going to be doing the steps when I ask you to do them? What would lead me to think that you would do the steps when I ask you to do them? I'm just seeing how sincere you are. If you don't want to shave, that's fine. But I won't sponsor you. You can get somebody who is willing to work according to your likes and dislikes. But if you want to surrender, try that, and I'll see you Friday. And I thought, you (laughs) know... I couldn't get my hand up quite so fast. I think I said something like, "Okay," and uh, I went. I went home and I sweated him a couple of nights. It was a Wednesday night that he did this. I I thought I'd sweat him on Thursday and not shave. And uh, then that Friday morning, I got up and I went into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I thought, and it occurred to me—I didn't think it. It wasn't a rational thought. It was one of those occurrences that came to me that just the same thing that told me to stop drinking. It said, um, "If if you fight one more thing, you aren't going to make it." that's all i felt inside and i took a pair of scissors and snipped it off and then shaved it off and i went to the men's stag that night and uh bill came up and said here we go you know as happy as he could be he said you're we're, we're ready to go and he's been my sponsor ever since i was 15 years and eight months and some odd days ago and uh that man has taken me through alcoholics anonymous step by step by example as much as by direction by being a participant in alcoholics anonymous he's probably as active or more active now than he was then and um I cannot, if you're new, I can't tell you how profoundly my life has been changed by the influence of that guy. And, uh, he was compassionate with me when I was, when I was confused and wanted a drink and was, and was just that kind of nuts that we get, which is not cuckoo nuts because most of us understand cuckoo nuts. That's kind of fun when you're cuckoo nuts and getting a little attention then. My most dangerous kind of nuts is when I am the most sane son of a bitch in the room. And everybody else seems nuts. And they're all putting me on. I'm the only one who's got the big picture. And they're all they've all got the clown masks on, you know. (laughs) And I just it drives me that's when it drives me crazy. That's when I feel like I'm my most dangerous and I can't hear you say, Oh come on, man, you're just going through a chance. No, you don't get it. They're wrong. I'm right. And Bill was. Bill understood that. And Bill said, I just want you to get commitments at to your meetings, and that will calm you down. I want you to get to meetings and do what people do there, and just fall in line to the group. Fall in line with what people are doing. And in my group, people are active. And I couldn't just stand there and ask them why they were doing things. I had to chase along if I wanted to get an answer out of them. And um, I went to the meetings just, uh, the only way I can describe it is when I got into AA, I had a little circle drawn around my feet, right around my, they touched my toes and my heels behind me. And everything inside the circle was acceptable to Charlie. And everything outside the circle was unacceptable. And what my sponsor did and what the group did at first was ask me to step out of the circle for just a little while and you can get back in when you're done. We're not going to ask you to stay out here. You can step back into the safety of that when you're done. But I want you to do something for me today. I want you to step outside of that circle for an hour and a half Come to a meeting, shake people's hands, look them in the eye, and ask them how they are, and do your commitment as if it's a job, because people in AA are counting on you to be there. And I did it. And then I jumped back in the circle. The meeting was over. i go out for coffee, but I'd still get back in the circle of acceptability, you know, what was acceptable to me. And what Alcoholics Anonymous did over a period of time, uh, over a matter of months, was it, it gradually started widening that circle around me to what was acceptable and what wasn't just by stepping out of it for an hour and a half a day and then getting back in again. And the group was my higher power for a long time. And the people in the group I revered, and I listened to people's stories, and I started to relate to what they were talking about. And the thing that really turned me around in Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard two people speak who really hit me where I live. One was Hank, who's sitting right here, and another one was Don N. And uh, Don spent 19 years in prison, and I, I didn't spend any time in jail, you know. Um... But everything he talked about, the one night, it just, I just—I just heard every word that man said, and I understood exactly what he was talking about, and I felt like I was part of something, you know. I understood because I was just a dork who drank too much, and this is a strong-arm robber who beat people up and terrorized people, and yet the feelings were the same, and alcohol gave him the same sense of relief it gave me, and he was willing, as I was, to do any—anything to get drunk again if that was what would happen. And that would be insane, you know. When you take everything I've got, and I heard a guy in a jean say this when I was newly sober, Uh, a few months, he said that if you took everything that you have, that I have in my life, and you put it on the floor right here, you put all of my reputation, you put my the changes I've been through and the experiences I've been through in my sobriety, and you put the relationships I've been in, the relationship I'm in, and the goodness in my life and all my friends and the reunion of me to my family and my reunion to being an active and working participant in the world and a citizen, and you put all that stuff right there on the floor and you put a glass of Jack Daniels right here, I would still, I would still think about drinking that. At the expense of everything there. It would still occur to me at some point that that might work again. And that's crazy. It's crazy. And that's why I keep coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it sounds dramatic, but I'll tell you, it isn't meant to be dramatic. Alcoholics are, from time to time, insane. And it's just that subtle kind of insanity. That one day, when my guard is down, and I'm feeling a little self-pity, and I'm feeling a little regret, a little resentment, all that stuff intermingling, and somebody says... The usual, Mr. Carney, and I will still say maybe tonight this will be a little different. And that's that's crazy, and and I can't, and I'll drink again. I never would, you know. I I don't drink a day at a time, and I'll tell you that truthfully that that I'm not above believing that I would drink again. I've watched other people do it. I watched I watched people like Richard, the guy who gave me that number and made me call him and probably save my ass that day and allowed me to stay one more day. When, uh, they found him dead in his apartment. You know, about four years later, because Richard had gone back out to try it again. You know, and there have been many people in Alcoholics Anonymous who have put their hands out to me and drawn me in and helped pull me out of that circle of acceptability around my feet who are gone now and dead. You know, and I bet everybody in this room can name four people, five people who they've had direct experience with that that's happened. So I don't take, I don't say that insanity, I don't say insane lightly or say it to just be dramatic. I mean, people do insane things and and, and die from it. And the worst ones stay, stay, stay drunk and stay alive. You know, I watched a guy named Bob L, uh, who, uh, was sponsor, or he was roommate to a guy I was good friends with, this a few years ago, and Bob had about eight years in sobriety, and he was one of those guys, when I was new, I looked up to him as being a real hardcore Alcoholics Anonymous guy, and he had, he had the grapevine inbound volumes in his apartment, and he had weak hair on the wall, and he had all the slogans all over the wall, and the last time I saw Bob, I was stepping out of his apartment to pick this roommate up to go to a meeting, and Bob was drunk in his barca lounger, trying to get his teeth out of a, his false teeth out of a glass of vodka by pouring the glass up and get the teeth to float into his mouth. You know, that's the last I saw of that guy. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but uh, uh that was the most hideous thing I think I'd seen in a long time it was just Bob sitting there trying to trying to drink the glass of vodka that his teeth had fallen into and get his teeth to come back into his mouth at the same time. Um, it's a good trick if you can do it, but uh, <laughs> he didn't have an audience because we went to a meeting, but um, my life has been altered, you know, and my I at a year at two years sober my sponsor got tired of hearing me whine about my job and suggested I go back to school. And I didn't want to go back to school because I hated school while I was in it. I graduated with a degree in journalism that was hard won because I could not stand to be in school. It was an ordeal. And um so I I went back anyway because he told me to and um I had asked the gardener where to go to enroll for graduate school. I didn't know how to find my way around this campus, and I felt humiliated. But I I learned from people in Alcoholics Anonymous that you just ask. You just find your way and let other people be of service. So I went up to this gardener, and he was happy enough to stop what he was doing and show me where to go to enroll in graduate school. And I got in there, and another clerk was happy enough to show me how to get to the right office. And people started doing... You know, it's it's funny. We think that we're the only ones in the world who are doing God's will. And, And there are people out there who are mowing lawns and fixing car engines and sweeping up in front of stores and doing all that stuff who are doing God's will just the same way all of us are, who are happy to pause in what they're doing and offer help to somebody who needs it just by the nature of themselves because they're not as selfish as I am. It's not a pain in the ass for them to stop oh, on, stop sweeping and lead this dummy to graduate school so it can go be a big deal in the world, you know. <laughs> not this guy. This guy was really pleasant, and he showed me where to go and get, and get the information I needed. And I applied, and lo and behold, I got accepted. And I didn't have any money. But I have been going to... Um, uh, what we call in our group finance class. And uh, an alcoholic who had been in financial trouble when he was newly sober was showing other newly sober alcoholics how to start paying their bills and balance a checkbook and be responsible. And it was like doing a ninth step, you know. He would sit there and watch me write my bills out and watch me put them in the correct envelopes for a change and uh, <laughs> watch me mail, you know, put the stamp on. Now go out and mail them, you know. And, and I did that for a year with this guy. And because of the effort I put into doing that, for some reason, somebody gave me a loan to go to graduate school. And... Uh, I'm still paying for it today, actually, but um, it was, that, that's what happened. And it's not a miracle, it's just meeting responsibility. You know? And, and uh, I did that, and I didn't want to go back to grad school, I figured I was gonna be the oldest guy in the graduate school, and I was. And uh, I, I was sitting in there with 22 year olds who were real active minds, and I thought, I've blown, I can't memorize things. You know, I couldn't memorize poems, I couldn't memorize sonnets, I was majoring in English, which is really a disadvantage, and uh, <laughs> and I'd look at the stuff and sometimes I would sit at home and I would read something that struck me so beautiful I'd sit there and cry and I, it occurred to me after a while that I was starting to develop a love of learning that I had not learned on my own but i learned in Alcoholics Anonymous by reading that book that I thought was so pedestrian when I got here the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with the illustrious Jaywalker analogy in it you know I've been reading Shakespeare's sonnets and explicating them and I get to the Jaywalker thing I'm supposed to be impressed with that you know and um G ma a grand the wind stop blowing or whatever that is and um <laughs> And yet, I started, because of the action that my sponsor was insisting that I put into my life, according to the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, I could go back to that big book every single week at a step study, and sit there in a book study, and read that book from cover to cover, over and over and over again, as we did in the step study, and I would start to realize that the big book turned out to be a touchstone for all my actions were in the world. You know, it wasn't like I was sitting there trying to learn step one by heart so I could run out and try to practice it, it was that the actions that people were showing me how to take, like showing up on time and surrendering to a sponsor and calling every day, and doing what he suggested even though I didn't want to do it, was the same thing as admitting that I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable, making a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God, and and, uh, coming to believe in a power that a power greater than I am can restore me to sanity. I had to take the actions first before I understood what the book meant. Even though I was continuing to read the book all the time, I couldn't figure it out. And if you think you have to sit there and try to read the book forward and backward and you know link hands and somehow channel Bill while you're reading it and or or you think there are some kind of chicken bones you can toss down on it and go boogie 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 uh, There is no incantation you can do in that big book. The big book just is what it is. It's the writings of a guy trying to stay sober based on his experience and the experience of other people who are trying to stay sober around him. And as it says at the very end, the kicker is that, you know, our book is meant to be suggestive only. You know, we recognize we know only a little. And and I just keep stumbling along in my sobriety. And i got to tell you, anything that I tell you about sobriety is purely, um, you know, it's just experience. And I don't do it well. I did my fifth step. I didn't do, I didn't have the sky open here, a chorus of angels after I did my fifth step. I felt crappy. And... uh Bill took me back to a meeting. You know, we went to a meeting that night and went to coffee afterward, and, and Bill would sit there, and every person came up to the table and sat down, he'd say, Charlie just took his fifth step. And everybody would go, whoa, that's great. You know, I thought, what's so goddamn great about it? I don't feel very good. I just told somebody, I just told somebody about what I was doing in the car after I went to donkey lunch, and he knows what I've been doing. He knows about my mother's nightgown. He knows all the stuff. I don't feel very happy about this. No one knew it up until tonight. Now, Now he knows. But you know, after I did that, it was probably a while later that I realized I'm not the same person that did that. I'm somehow that's another world for me. It's me, but I'm not the same person today that I was when I did that stuff. And I don't have to do that stuff today if I choose not to. And I uh, got to make amends to my mother. And I, the way I heard, uh, the way I made amends to my mother, I heard it from Clint. And Clint wasn't telling it to me directly, but Clint was talking at a meeting, and he talked about how he made, or I made amends to my dad that way. Uh, Clint was talking about he, how he made amends to his mother. And I took the direction that he had. And I, had, I didn't make amends to my dad for ten years. So Brian, when I was ten years sober, I still had not made amends to my father. And my sponsor had suggested that I do it, and I just put it off and didn't do it. And finally, at ten years, I was uh, at an AA function out in Orange County. And I was coming back, and I realized, for some reason, I realized I was within about a mile of the cemetery where he was buried. I hadn't been there for 20 years since the day we buried him. And I knew I, my father was disappointed in me, and I didn't have a very good relationship with him. And I just stayed, I stayed the hell away. But I went back to the cemetery, and I kept thinking of Clint. I tried to recall everything he said to do. I went across the street to a, a little convenience store, and I bought scissors, and I bought some paper towels, and I bought some cleaning fluid, and I bought some uh, carnations because they were my dad's favorite flower. And I got all that stuff in my car, and I drove across the street. And the man at the cemetery gave me a map of where his body was and so I drove over to where he was and tried to find the tombstone and found it. And I sat there and I did exactly what my sponsor told me to do. And I did exactly what, what Clint had done. And I kind of cleaned his gravestone off and put the carnations down and just talked to him. Just talked to him like a, like a sober son would talk to him if he was sitting across the table from me and said, I don't know what happened. You know, I'm really sorry for anything I might have done that, that, uh, would have disappointed you or hurt you. And I'm really sorry most of all I never paid any attention to you. And I really never gave him any kind of credit for being a real man. I just took him as being my father and a pain in the neck and always trying to dictate something to me. And uh, I never got a chance to ever know him. And he was a master carpenter and I never got a chance to ever watch him. Uh, I never took the chance to ever stand there and watch him do his work in, in the garage. I always figured, you know, he's out there working again. There he goes. Sawdust on his glasses and squishy sole shoes and I want to be Errol Flynn and I'm looking at my father and thinking, this is not going to cut it. And I talked to him out there and I told him what was happening, you know, and I, Got in my car and drove away, and there was no big burst of outpouring of emotion or anything. I just drove away. And about um, maybe a couple of months later, it occurred to me that my father had not been disappointed in me at all. You know, never been disappointed in me at all. He loved me as as a, a father would love his son, and his only son. And a son that came after three big disappointments and three big... Uh, heartaches and tragedies in their life because they were afraid they would never have a child. and They wanted a child. And there I was. And here I, I come popping out of the womb, you know, uh, not ready to accept anything from them. I didn't want their silly crap. You know, it wasn't enough. It wasn't like my friend Pat's parents had, you know, or anybody else's parents, for that matter. And um, I came to realize that, um, you know, he, he did care for me. And, and I, I understood that for some reason after I made amends to him. And you don't have to... I mean, if you're doing the steps... You don't have to do them perfectly. You just have to do them. You have to keep doing them. You have to struggle with them and walk with them and do them wrong if you have to because there really is no wrong way to do them. You just do them like I do, clumsily, awkwardly, embarrassedly, going back and paying back the money. I went back to my mom and I, I owed her a couple of thousand dollars that I would never counted on. I had to pay her back. And I paid her back the way Sharon B. paid her father back. And I pick up, it's really monkey see, monkey do in AA. There's nothing complicated about it. There's no uh, second language here. We're not, We're not speaking pig Latin here. This is where you just watch the people who you know are the winners and you follow their example and see what results you get and then share it with another alcoholic. And so I went and I, I did what Sharon did with her dad and I started paying my mom back. My, not at my mother's request. I just realized I owed her this money and I'd never feel close to her unless I could pay her back. And I started sending her checks every week. And this is, at, again, 10 years sober. And I, I sent the, started sending the checks to her. And she was delighted. She, and I was sending her notes in the check. And what I did essentially was invite my mom back into my life. You know, after we had had a strange kind of relationship, and it's still not great today. I got to tell you, it's still a difficult time I have with her because we're so di- such we're such similar personalities that we try not to talk about anything that's happened since the Coolidge administration. But uh, <laughs> uh, my mom and I try to we try to get along, you know, and she loves me today, and she and she is able to laugh about things that we would both just bristle at before. And um, I realize that by calling her when I go on trips like this, I always send her a postcard just to let her know where I am and what I'm doing. And she's been sick the last few months, and um, she's eight, she's going to be 84 in June, of the day before my AA birthday. And I'm just grateful that I've had these years to kind of try to be a son to her, so I don't. So in case anything does happen, she doesn't have to go thinking that I didn't care about it. That's what I'm mostly ca- concerned about. It has very little to do with my feelings toward her because I'm willing to do this and happily willing to do this. Uh, I was told when I was new that uh, right around Thanksgiving time, my first year of sobriety, I asked my sponsor if I should go to our our group. Function or spend it with my parents. My mom was remarried at the time. And uh, my sponsor said, you spend that time every Thanksgiving with your mother as long as she's alive because there's going to be a time when you would kill to have five minutes with that lady. And I want you to go down to every Thanksgiving and spend the time with her and miss the group because the group will be there for you but your mom may not be. So you just keep going down there and celebrating Thanksgiving with them. And I did that. And I'm glad that I did. And, um, you know, I, I started teaching, I taught college first, and I the pain apparently wasn't enough, and I went into high school teaching. And uh, I uh, taught high school for six years, only, I was gonna give it three, I stayed for six, and through Alcoholics Anonymous people learned how to handle, how to teach kids who are, you know, 16 and 17 year olds. There are 40 of them in your classroom, the bell rings. They come into your class and sit down, the bell rings, and you have to work them into shape. For 50 minutes, and just about the time you get them under control and listening, the bell rings. They leave and send a fresh batch in. You know, So they were as unruly and rambunctious as ever. And I started to learn. I learned through AA that I can love these kids. You know, and I don't mean. I just love you, kids. Tell them that. You might as well just give them the nails and say, "Go ahead, stick me in the wall." Uh, they don't want to be loved. They want to be respected. They don't want to be loved. They want to be. Shown an example. They don't want to be loved. They want to be uh, treated fairly. And where did I learn all that? You know, I learned that by by working with alcoholics and alcoholics Anonymous. If you can love a guy who comes in here with with uh, a fifty cent size stain of pee on his pants and an attitude, you can handle a teenager anytime. <laughs> they're wonderful and and they're they're eager. You know, and they need something. I, I was told by there are two nuns who got sober at the same time I did, which always gives me a little tingle of excitement. And um, having grown up Catholic, but I, um, the, Sister Mary and Sister Sheila, I went to them because they were both in education at the time. And I said, "What do I, what do I do? I really don't know how to handle these kids. I didn't want to be a teacher anyway. So the damn sponsor told me to do it because the job came up, and I had to take opportunity, as it was put in front of me, according to him. I know better, but I'll do what he says just to humor the poor rube." And um, and Bill said, "Just take it. It's an opportunity." So. I did it, and I went to Sheila and Mary and said, what do I do? You know, they're, they're, It's hard to deal with teenagers, and I don't know what... I was never a teenager. I never dealt with kids. I never grew up with kids. I had friends around, you know, little friends every so often, but I didn't really hang out with kids, so I don't know really how to deal with them on that level. And uh, Mary and Sheila said, just treat them like newcomers, see how that works. Let them know that you've got something they want, let them know that you care about them, and let them know that you respect them, but you only care about them as much as they care about what you're doing. And one of my teachers at Loyola Marymount, one of my classroom theory teacher, said, let them know that you have a subject to teach and that nothing gets between you and your subject. And it's the same as in AA. Nothing gets between me and my sobriety. I will not let that happen. And that's why I have a sponsor, and that's why I'm active, because if I, if there's a day when I will let that happen, there's someone to call me on it, and I'm able to do something about it. But I went in there and just had a good time with these kids, tried to. It was hard. It was heartbreaking a lot of the time. But I'll tell you something, I learned everything about loving other people in in that experience. I learned so much about being able to give love without, ask, without anything in return. I didn't want their return love, I just felt what people had taught me in here. Because I learned in AA that love is not an emotion at all. And I learned through my experience that it's just something you do. It's just something you do. Because people did it for me. People... On about the 14th of June of 1981, when I came to my first AA meeting, on the 16th of June, whenever it was, somebody had been in that meeting of a sunny Sunday afternoon, and somebody had been in there already, putting out literature, making coffee, setting up the podium, setting up the chairs, laying cookies out, bringing a cake, making sure that everything was set up at that meeting, not necessarily for the people who they knew were going to come to that meeting, but in the anticipation that somebody knew might come through that door and need exactly what was in there at that time. And I was the guy. I was the, that night's guy. And I walked in there, and I was from the very beginning able to start benefiting from the very first tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. And those people laid that out for me in spades that night, and made sure I had cookies, and made sure I had coffee, and made sure I heard a message, and made sure I saw that there was unity there, and that people enjoyed what they were doing, and they were inviting me into it. Not like a cult or some weird thing. They were just saying, this is here if you want it. If you want to come back next week, we'll be here too, and we hope you come back and join us. But they never tried to give me the hard sell ever, and so I, I laid out whatever I could for my classes during the day because I learned what was laid out for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I got out of teaching about six years ago to um, become a writer. Uh, another one of those things that happens when you start teaching writing and you start writing with your students. Eventually, you start learning how to write better. And uh, <laughs> whoa, what a concept! Uh, and so I started doing that, and I, uh, I started writing animated cartoons and, and got some success at that. And And uh, I'll tell you, if you are new or if you're having some trouble figuring out what's going on around here, what's going on in your life, stick with it. Do the steps. You will find out some nugget that God has placed inside of you that you do extremely well that will rise out. And I didn't know if that would be something I could do, and I did it anyway. You know, I just did it because, not because I thought, I want to be a cartoon writer. What I thought was, if I don't do this, Bill is going to be really mad, (laughs) so I'll do it. And I did it. And... um, It's been fine, you know. I had my first two books published last year. Whoop-de-do is my reaction to it, but I only say that because it's it's amazing to me. I look at them completely objectively and go, I can't believe I did that, you know, that I even wrote a book, much less got it got it published, and I was amazed at that. And what happens? And I don't take any. I mean, I could lose this job tomorrow. Doesn't matter. You know, it, it upset me some, but, uh, uh, it doesn't really matter because that's not the point. The point is that I've learned to be a human being first, and I've learned to like you, and I've learned to care about you, and I've learned to look you in the eye, and I've learned to ask if you're alright, and I've learned to, and to care about people, you know, a little bit, and get out of my selfish self. And every time I look down now to see where that circle is around my feet, I realize I can't even see it anymore because on some days I can, some days it all of a sudden goes right back the way it was usually in traffic, but, um,
1: <laughs>
0: most days, I don't even notice it at all. I don't notice the boundaries of it, I don't even notice, I feel like there's unacceptable, and acceptable. there's just, there's just what is right now, and I just kind of go through it, and try to, try to restrain myself from judging too harshly, and, and try to live my life, and, um, um, it's good, I'm involved in a relationship now with someone I deeply love, and, and feel loved, and feel like we can take it a day at a time, she, um, came here with me this weekend and having a great time. You know, something that I, a year ago I could never have anticipated this at all. And my life is good today. I'll tell you a story and I'll sit down. My dad, um, Mr. Drill Instructor, um, used to get up every morning uh, at about 4 o'clock in the morning. He was a farm boy from Fargo, North Dakota. And my dad would get up every morning and he would uh, iron a shirt for me. From the time I was in junior high until I graduated from high school, he'd iron a shirt for me pretty much every morning, and he would make me lunch. Uh, He'd make a sandwich, cut it just the way he thought I'd like it, put chips in, put in an apple. My parents did not have very much money at all. And so this was a real extravagance for him. And And he'd make this lunch for me, and he'd put it in a bag and fold the bag and write my name on the bag and set it by the front door. And then he'd go to work about 6.30, just about the time I was rolling out of bed, to go to school. And I would go out there without any thought at all, put that shirt on, grab that lunch and walk out and go to school, and I get across the school boundary, and as I stepped across the boundary, I'd throw the lunch in the trash can, because uh, cool kids don't carry their lunch to school. Cool kids buy their lunch, and I truly did not want anything else to denote me as an outcast, and I felt like an outcast. I felt like a real dweeb the entire time I was around the other kids. I just felt horrible. About my state and about where I was living and what I was doing. And I felt self-conscious about everything, you know. And alcohol relieved me of that. But at the time, I hadn't had a drink. I just felt alienated. So I thought, rather than have one more piece of evidence to make me a dork, I'd throw that lunch out that my father got up and made for me. And I'd go in there and I wouldn't eat. And then I would get pissed off because I was hungry at the end of the day. You know, and uncomfortable and angry. And the next day, my dad would lay another lunch out there with an iron shirt, and I'd pick it up and walk across the school boundaries and drop it in the trash so that nobody would see me carrying my lunch on campus. And I would feel, every time I did that, a little twist, because it, it had it registered with me because I did put it on my inventory. And uh, it just hurt, you know, to do that, but I had to do it as far as I saw. And I talked to my mom about this a few years ago, and my mom said, well, yeah, I, I confessed to her that that's what I had done. And she said, yeah, well, we kind of knew that. And I said, how did you know that? And she said, well, your dad knew. He'd ask me questions about, you know, how you like the orange you put. Was the orange sweet enough? And I said, oh, yeah, it was great. And then he'd put an apple in just to see if I was really eating his lunch, you know. And uh, he knew I wasn't eating, and he'd just make it. He'd get up every day and make it. And I thought, that is really, why did he do that? You know, I asked my mom this, and she said, well, he loves you. You know, he loved you. That's, uh, he just got up and did that for his son. And I said, even after he knew that I was tossing out, she said, yeah, I guess so. You know, and my father would get up and make this lunch. And I um I would sit there and judge him for what he wasn't and never recognize what he was. And there was a poem that I used to read to my kids in high school, and I missed the point. It was called uh Even Sundays, and I forget who the author was, and Nancy, a friend of mine in AA, wrote it out for me and sent it to me because she had found it in a book she had, and I had forgotten it. But the last lines, I'm paraphrasing this again, I don't I can't remember things terribly well. Uh it said, um, it was, a, it was a story, it was a poem, a very short poem about a man recollecting his childhood and how he had judged his father, and how his father had gotten up every morning, even Sundays, and warmed the house for the whole family, went out and got some wood and put it in the fireplace and heated the living room up so that when the family came out, the floor would be warm and they could enjoy the morning. Even on Sundays, he would do that. And the last two lines were, how, what, "What did I know? What did I know about the lonely and austere offices of love? You know, what the hell did I know about any of that stuff?" And love, as, as anybody who's been around here for a while, as the people who've been around here long before me know, love is sometimes a really lonely and austere office. It's a really, it's not a matter of feeling good about feeling good, and it's not a matter of talking about God. And it's not a matter of talking great about God and all how God is great and God is good. It's acting out God's will, no matter how uncomfortable that is. I don't do that very well. My father did that wonderfully, and I didn't get it. I just walked right past it. And my anger and self-centered resentment just walked right past it. And I'll tell you, if my dad could make a lunch every day and set out food for his son and know that his son was chucking it in the trash every day, certainly God, my, what I believe to be my godly father, is laying out a spread for me every single day. And if I choose not to take from it, who's to blame? You know, who is to take the blame for that? Not whoever's laying it out. And I get my nourishment from Alcoholics Anonymous. I get my nourishment from my involvement in AA, from the big book, from the people in AA, from the fellowship, and from taking it out of here and walking outside and trying to practice it the best I can without getting credit for being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the anonymous part for those who forget that. And... um, I don't ask for credit for that. I just enjoy doing it because it makes me feel better. It makes me like you more. It makes my life more comfortable and it makes it easier for me to live. I would never have known that. You know, How could I know? I was so busy staring at myself. So I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I partake of the food, of the banquet that's here. The party's going on in the world. It's a dynamic, joyful, active, loving world provided by God who puts puts a spin on it every morning for us. You know, and if you're new or you're having trouble and you feel like there's no hope, stay here, come back tomorrow, sit in these rooms, eat from the banquet. If you don't, who've you got to blame? I want to thank you again. Thanks Bob and thanks Bill.